December 7, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. That's one small step for man. The events. One giant leap for mankind. The figures. I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Violiner. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are corrupt. The deep well, questions. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. I want you to think back to the house you grew up in as a child. I want you to picture a room in that house that didn't exist. I want you to pretend it did. And the whole time you're a young child growing up into your adolescence, and until you leave home, you're aware of this room in the house. And the room has faces on the wall. Dead people's faces the faces of dead people who are related to you. The faces are made of wax, and they were made immediately upon death of the individual whose face it was. The wax was put on the face in like a modern version of a wax museum, an accurate representation of your dead ancestor's dead face was made and was put on your wall, connected by a painted line to his ancestor, your even earlier ancestor, whose wax face made after death is also on the wall, and that is connected by another line to his ancestor, whose wax mask is there as well. These may have been full-color versions of these ancestors of yours, And their names were there. And from your very earliest childhood memory, you're aware of this room. And you're aware of who these people are. And you're aware of what they did. It's a little freaky, though, isn't it? Now you know how Julius Caesar felt growing up. Now I remember being terrified by paintings, completely innocent and innocuous paintings, in my house when I was a child. And I know my children get freaked out at the slightest thing like that, but to Julius Caesar and people like him, this ancestor room, as it's sometimes called, had a profound effect on firing their ambition. You know, the ancient historian Sullust said that the Romans described their children's spirits as blazing like flames when they would look at the sight. The ancient historian Polybius said, quote, It would be hard to imagine a more impressive scene for a youth who aspires to win fame and practice virtue. End quote. 
to these people who spent time amongst the Romans or who were Roman themselves, they thought this was a good way to create in your young people this desire for achievement that was the hallmark of Roman society during this time period. You're getting the Dan Carlin version of the decline of Republican Rome. And just like every other version you will read, it's different. All societies produce ambitious people. My dictionary defines ambition as an earnest desire for some type of achievement or distinction, such as power, honor, fame, or wealth, and the willingness to strive for its attainment. And I think someday they're going to find some genetic component to this that determines how much ambition a person has or doesn't have. But to me, Republican Rome is sort of an historical experiment where you try to see how much you can hone, you know, that natural diamond by the cultural carrots and sticks you have. Because Rome had some of the most intense carrots and sticks when it came to ambition as any society I've ever seen. But when I read about this, it's a very complicated story, the most complicated story to try to relate in the entire ancient world. And that's for two reasons. One, we have so much more in the way of records. Societies immediately become more complex the more you know about them. If you had the actual records from a place like ancient Egypt or ancient China or the ancient peoples of South America, you would see societies that were much, 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 much more complex than they currently seem to be on paper. In addition, the Romans were not ruled by monarchs. They had a lot of people in on the governing process, like today's republics, like our country here in the United States, or the parliament governments in most of the rest of the world. So instead of having one important person you have to know about in a given period, there are often several, sometimes many, who play an important role in the story. So the story's hard to explain, and there's a lot of interpretation on the part of... I mean, just pick up different books on the subject, and you'll see the differences right there. But there are certain commonalities. One of them is this almost mania the Roman upper classes had about ambition and the desire for distinction. And a competitive society based on merit in a way, though, that might be a little double-edged. Americans, for example, take such pride in competition, and you will hear political speeches sometimes where they will talk about how competition weeds out the weak and you end up getting the very best, and there's all these theories on the value of competition, and that's the sort of thing a Roman from the upper classes during the later republic would completely understand. They felt exactly the same way. But Roman society was organized in a way to produce more of those people maybe than is normal. If there's a constant percentage, like 10% of the people are going to be hyper-ambitious in a given society, the Romans were creating a society that would get that number as high as you could get it. If all the cultural carrots and sticks are designed to improve it, can you get that 10% number up to 15 or 20%? And if you do, does that give you a corresponding advantage over your other societies that you're competing with? I'll give you an example. The Romans were fighting against societies, for the most part, that were led by kings. And kings are a bit of a crapshoot. Sometimes you get a gifted one, like in Alexander the Great, and sometimes you don't. 
during the period when the Romans were on the rise and doing very well in the foreign policy realm, they were often dealing with individuals of less than high quality intellect and capability, certainly people who never would have gotten to any high rank had it been a system based on, you know, how ambitious you were and how capable. In Rome, the way that they had organized their government and their system was to encourage the most ambitious, sometimes one might say the most ruthless, and the most competent men to the highest rank. I often, in my own mind, see Roman society organized a little like a mafia crime family is. But you have to imagine, instead of a mafia crime family, you have the same sort of organization, but based completely on honor and you know, service to the state and merit and glory and per, you know, a, a personal sense of virtue. The Romans paid a lot of attention to this idea of virtue. It was all connected to their ancestors who went back to this almost mythical golden age where virtue was greater than it is whenever the Romans were looking backward and they could just go into their little ancestor room and see the dead faces of the honorable men before them. And the same way that in a mafia crime family, if you get a mob boss that is not strong enough, that's too weak, that gets lazy or gets too weak to defend himself, he'll get taken down by an underling who's more ruthless more competent, and who's got a sharper edge. The patrician Roman families were often at odds with each other in legal competition towards ambition and honors and greatness and prestige and fame. And often in the United States, we would think that people would want that so that they could get money, because money is a you know, wonderful thing to have, obviously. But in ancient Rome... Money was often more a means to an end. You get the money to get the power. You get the power to win the honors. Later in Roman history, a guy named Crassus would say, you really can't call yourself rich unless you can afford your own army, which Crassus could. And the reason you had to have an army was so you could go conquer things and win honor, which you could come back to Rome and then celebrate. In a way, these people had massive egos, but all for the glory of the state and their families. You would call these people, in a sense, human failures if they were just doing this for themselves. But Rome had organized a state where the great people had the ability to do great things. And they dragged society along with them as they did. You look at these great figures that Rome produced over and over and over again, and they're getting way more than their fair share, historically speaking. Why? Well, because unlike these countries they were often facing, you didn't get a king in there who stayed for 30 or 40 years sometimes, and, you know, that was it, who knocked down every rival that popped their head above the sand. In Rome, all those rivals were there, even if you had a great man leading the country. And those rivals were sniping at them every step of the way, making them be tougher, better, edgier, do more, or somebody else is going to get the job. It's a giant game of King of the Mountain. And Rome benefited from that. Now, the way these families, who were all taking turns at the top jobs, because Rome had two consuls running the country instead of just a single leader. It would be the equivalent of having two presidents of the United States at the same time. And sometimes guys who didn't necessarily get along 
and that was thought to be a good thing, a check and balance to the system. That's hard for Americans to imagine today, isn't it? Instead of having that famous election with George Bush and Al Gore that was contested in 2000, maybe you could have Al Gore and George Bush running the country together at the same time. There's wild implications. It's fun to play with. In Rome, though, having two consuls was a double-edged sword as well. Created some of the problems in their system that became part of a stalemate later on. And in a system where the great ambitious men are constantly looking for outlets to prove their greatness and bring more honor to their family, when you put a lid on the ability to do that, eventually things just explode. And that's what happened to Rome in the later part of the Republic, if you believe the Dan Carlin version of this story. Now, Rome's progressive stalemating in their government is one of the major reasons a lot of historians believe Rome started to decline. An inability of Rome's governmental system to deal with all the changes that Rome had been through in a very short period of time. Remember, Rome's governmental system was designed essentially for what was a small city-state. That same system in basically a couple of generations had to deal with a world empire. This is a system that, if you look closely at it, is obviously built for a small, close-knit group of people. I mean, one of the elements to the Roman system that's obviously a part of a small city-state sort of way of doing things is the whole relationship between the powerful people in Rome and what are called their clients. Again, it works well with the mafia crime family style of governance, although there were a lot of governments in human history that had that sort of a, we would call it a, a feudal vassal relationship with a vassal and a lord in my family version, because the Romans are families. It's the same sort of thing that you see in one of the very first scenes in any of the Godfather movies, when Marlon Brando is at his daughter's wedding, but he has to take a time out during the ceremonies to go into his private office and listen to the pleas of one of the people who sort of lives in his territory, one of the regular folk. And this person has a problem that they can't go to the law for and that they can't personally deal with. And he's petitioning the head of the family for his aid. And you can tell that there's an obligation on the part of even the powerful family, you know, crime boss member to be there. Otherwise, you wouldn't take time away from your daughter's wedding. It's part of the, the deal, the relationship. And he then says to the man, I'll take care of your problem. I'll do what you ask. And then he has that wonderful line where he says, Now someday, and that day may never come, I may have a need to ask a favor of you. There, in a nutshell, is how the Roman-client relationship worked. And it's obviously one of those things that works better in a city like Rome and the surrounding areas in a small, relatively small country than on a massive world scale. And you can see how out of control it gets as Rome snaps up more territory and more people are incorporated within it. And eventually, when you get down to the time of the civil wars, you have people like Pompey the Great, who have hundreds of thousands of clients, maybe even millions of clients. He has whole kingdoms where the king has become his client, and therefore, you know, ipso facto, all of the king's subjects have. And Pompey pulls one of those moves from the godfather and says, you know, someday I may have a need of you, and that day is next week. I'll meet you at Pharsalus. <laughs> he brought all his clients to the civil wars with him. So that's just a part of the Roman governing 
way of life that didn't fit very well on the world stage. And understand how quickly things had changed, though. It's not really fair to say that the Roman system was incapable of evolving to deal with the changes. The changes happened so fast, maybe it's unrealistic to expect any governmental system to be able to deal with them. The people in Republican Rome probably had a bad case of national whiplash. I mean, think of what they had gone through in a very short period of time. They had gotten into the three Punic Wars, one right after another, basically, and in a generation or two, they're transformed from a small regional power into the biggest dog on the world stage. It's very much like, in my mind, the way the United States was transformed from what it had been in 1913, the year before the First World War started, and what it was in 1946, the year after the Second World War ended. Imagine being an American who lives through that change. That's massive change, and I'm not sure there are any governmental systems that are going to go through that easily. I mean, just listen to this list of what Rome was involved in during that time period, and you start to get an idea for how much was actually going on, you know, in the Roman government trying to deal with all this stuff. Okay, in 264, the First Punic War starts, and it lasts till 241. In 241, Rome defeats Carthage, gets Corsica and Sardinia, now part of its system. In 229, the First Illyrian War starts, and it ends in 227. Rome defeats Gauls at the Battle of Telamon in 224. Rome defeats Gauls again in 223. They get the Second Illyrian War in 220. They get the Second Punic War in 218. They get the First Macedonian War in 214. They defeat Hannibal in 202, and they get the Second Macedonian War in 202 as well. In 197, they get Spanish provinces. In 192, they get into a war with the Seleucid dynasty in what's now Syria and Lebanon and the Middle East in that part of the world. And they destroy, I mean utterly destroy, the army of the Seleucids at the Battle of Magnesia. They supposedly kill tens of thousands and lose like 192 guys. Obviously, those are inflated figures, but you get an idea that there was a minor casualty disparity. In 172, they start the Third Macedonian War. In 154, they're fighting in Spain. The Third Punic War happens in 149. The Fourth Macedonian War in 149. I mean, it's just over and over and over again, a relentless... And what's happening in all these wars is Rome is getting fabulously wealthy. It's changing Roman society, though. Remember something, too, about these Roman armies that were winning all these wars. They were commanded by politicians. There were perverse incentives, perhaps, on the part of these politicians to get involved in renewed fighting. Rome's diplomacy has always seemed a little harsh, there's a famous story of a Roman diplomat acting arrogant and going up to the Seleucid king and asking for an opinion on something. And the Seleucid king says something to the effect of, I'll, I'll get back to you later about it. And the Roman diplomat takes his walking stick and draws a little circle around where the Seleucid king is standing in the sand and says, have your decision before you step out of the circle. And one reason maybe that Roman diplomats are so arrogant and so non-compromising it's because maybe their generals wanted some violence to break out see these politicians all wanted these jobs as generals because Roman generals were becoming fabulously rich during this period having command of Roman armies almost assured that as long as you managed to use them while you had them 
there was an incentive to take this temporary command you got as part of a political position and do something with it that will help you politically in Rome before your job time limit runs out. Small wonder, then, that the Romans were always getting involved in conflicts. But they tended to pay off especially for the commanders. The commanders would get a victory that would bring some sort of glory and honor to Rome, maybe a new territory. It would bring tons of loot to you personally, which you would then distribute to your men and then bring a bunch of it back to Rome. You could have a triumph, which is what a lot of these generals really wanted, these political generals. A triumph was a parade in your honor, which you still had to kick out a lot of money for. So the more money you kicked out, the greater the triumph, and you got to be the centerpiece in a parade. You'd be in a chariot with people holding signs up behind you, telling the people of Rome how many of the bad guys you killed for them. And then your soldiers would be marching behind you, carrying all the loot and the stuff you were bringing back for the citizens of Rome, stuff to deposit in the temples or the public treasury, while they cheer you on, all this time bringing glory and honor to your family, which was a huge part of all this, but also helping your hyper-ambitious goals, because this was all like a giant PR fest for you. Your standing as a Roman politician gets a huge boost from something like this, and triumphs were absurdly important to these great men of Rome. They didn't care about the money. They wanted the triumph. The thing about the stuff that these people were bringing back to Rome, though, is it wasn't always inanimate objects. It wasn't always art and statues from Greece, but it often was. And it wasn't always money and loot and the enemy commanders, you know, in chains. It was other people in chains, too. Rome's wars brought back to Rome massive numbers of slaves. This was the sort of wealth that came to Rome as a byproduct of all their wars that would probably have the most negative effect on Rome's future history. Just my opinion. But the slave issue is one that will only get worse. So all of a sudden, a bunch of different things start happening in Roman society. The first thing that happens is that Rome can't handle all these military commitments. Rome's legionaries had always been raised from the farmer class and better in Roman societies. Even senators would go to war, and the consuls, the two leaders of the Roman society, would command. So everyone who owned a farm and above were all fighting. It was the responsibility to the state. But if you were poorer than a farmer, you didn't fight, and the majority of people still weren't fighting in Rome's wars unless things were really getting out of hand. But these people who had other lives, they weren't soldiers by nature, didn't like being stationed away for long periods of time. They didn't like fighting these wars that took five, eight years or however long. They couldn't be away from home for that kind of period of time. And even when Rome would finish up on one of these wars, they often had to garrison these areas with troops to keep things, you know, under control. Who's going to do that job? You're going to ask some farmer to stay away from his farm for years? So problems started to develop in terms of manpower. An army of regular people won the Roman Empire for them, but that army wasn't capable of policing it and expanding it. You needed to have people that weren't going to go home on the job. The second problem is, though, that you can't find those people because Roman society requires that you be a property owner to be in the military, and the property owners are shrinking. The number of people who have farms is getting lower. Slaves are being used more and more for jobs that regular Romans used to have. And richer and richer people are going in and buying land. 
that was owned by small farmers and creating these great estates. And the less people who owned farms in Rome, the less people that were eligible for military service. So just when Rome is getting this, you know, big, big empire that has to be policed and you need legions for and there's always threats on the edges, they have less and less people who meet the qualifications for military service. It's like a double whammy. Historian Michael Crawford writes about this period and the goings-on, quote, The dangerous developments of the 2nd century B.C. were then in large measure the result of the growth of Rome's empire, providing the oligarchy with wealth which had to be invested, making it easy for them to acquire extra lands, providing them with the slaves to work it, offering no alternative land elsewhere to those dispossessed. A part-time peasant army conquers the Mediterranean. That conquest then facilitates its destitution. End quote. Now, this intelligent, merit-based body that was really in charge of Roman affairs, the Roman Senate, understood this double whammy problem. They had an inability to solve it, though, because there were conflicting interests involved. The Senate really was Rome's version of a landed aristocracy. New people could come in, and they were called new men by the Romans. But once they were in, they were part of the club too. They may not have had an ancestor room in the house they grew up in, but once you're in, your kid grows up in an ancestor room and, you know, there's only one mask on the wall when he gets started, but eventually you start becoming one of the great families of Rome. So there were new men who could come up through the ranks. But even the new men in Rome came from the upper stratas of society. They will often portray this or that figure as being one of those people that raise themselves up from the gutter to command Rome at a certain point and you do your real checking and their version of the gutter is what they would have called a knight in medieval Europe. The equestrian class of Rome was below the patrician class, which was Rome's real elite, and the patricians would view an equestrian coming into their ranks as some poor little gutter snipe that worked their way up through hard work and were glad to have you, just not too many of you at once. Many of the new men in Rome came from the equestrian class. Now, these patricians who were the upper class of Rome were obviously a small minority. The large majority were the rest of the people who fell into a category, a broad category, called the plebs, the plebeians. And when Rome originally exiled its last king, you know, in the 700 BCs, it's mythically believed, these patricians ruled like gods over the people and feudal lords, supposedly. And then legend has it that in the 400s BCE, the patricians got involved in a war and they needed the plebs' help to fight it. And the plebs realized that they were in a rather strong negotiating position and they went on strike. And they told the patricians, we're not fighting your war and we're not helping till we get some rights in the government. And so magistrates were created that represented the interests of the plebeians in the Roman government. These were called the tribunes. And there were ten tribunes most of the time. The number fluctuated, I believe. And the tribunes had all sorts of interesting powers. For example, they could veto something that the Senate wanted passed. And they could also write their own laws, which they didn't do very often, but they could. And then directly take these laws to the people's representatives and see if the people wanted them. The tribunes were protected physically while in Rome it was like a crime, you know, and a tantamount to abusing the gods almost in 
the Roman mind to uh, assault or physically try to attack a tribune. And all their power in Rome is kind of based on this. I mean, they can arrest people by walking up to them and just grabbing them and taking them away in the Senate, you know, on sort of a citizen's arrest. And if you try to stop them, you're assaulting a tribune. Now, here's the catch. That only works while you're in Rome. If the tribune leaves town, all of a sudden you can grab him. Anything can happen. And you won't be treated like you assaulted a tribune in Rome. The other thing that happens, and this is a problem at every level of Roman government, is that you are protected from, like, corruption charges and legal problems and all that stuff while you're in office. But the minute you're out of office, you're liable for anything anybody wants to bring up. And Roman governmental justice in this time period is a little like trying to do it by lawsuit. And so you will have these political figures who are in office or commanding an army or doing some job. Maybe they're a praetor. There's all these Roman sub-positions. And while they have that job, they're safe. But they know that all these lawsuits are being prepared for them in Rome and powerful lawyers with great oratory skills like Cicero are going to be hired. And they're, the way they're hired is even funny in Rome because you can't directly hire them, so you just loan them lots of money at no interest that they never have to pay back. It's just it's wonderful, and it's corrupt, and in a funny way, you look at it and you go, well, it's not that much more corrupt than the way we do it now. So maybe there's a little scary, paranoid tie-in right there. So these tribunes are supposed to provide the safety valve so that the people aren't totally run over by the aristocracy that is the Senate. So what happens is you get this double whammy where you need to have more troops in the army, but there's not enough people who meet the military qualification of owning enough land. So you have an obvious solution to the problem, don't you? And these intelligent senators understood it too. The obvious decision is give the poor people land so that they qualify for military service. And the land was there. Make no mistake about it, the Romans were taking other people's land at this time in their history, hand over fist. And some of it gets put in a big pot that they call common land. And then this common land, a long time ago in Rome's history, used to be given to, like, poor Romans. You would turn some indigent person on the street into a citizen farmer overnight, and you had another legionary. So the Romans understood that that's the solution. The problem is, is that these senators, who mostly represented the upper classes in Rome, were the friends or actual owners of these, you know, great estates, the very ones that were causing a lot of the problem and were created by taking a lot of this public land and putting it together. So here's what the ancient writer Plutarch has to say about this double whammy and how the Romans had a problem dealing with it. He writes about some land that the Romans had just taken in conquest. He writes, quote, Of the land which the Romans gained by conquest from their neighbors, part they sold publicly and turned the remainder into common. This common land they assigned to such of the citizens as were poor and indigent, for which they were to pay only a small acknowledgement into the public treasury. But when the wealthy men began to offer larger rents and drive the poorer people out, it was enacted by law that no person whatsoever should enjoy more than 500 acres of ground. This act, for some time, checked the avarice of the richer and was of great assistance to the poorer people, who retained it under their respective proportions of ground as they had been formerly rented by them. Afterwards, the rich men of the neighborhood contrived to get these lands again into their possession under other people's names, and at last would not stick to claim most of them publicly in their own. 
The poor, who were thus deprived of their farms, were no longer either ready, as they had formerly been, to serve in war, or careful in the education of their children, insomuch that in a short time there were comparatively few free men remaining in all Italy, which swarmed with workhouses full of foreign-born slaves. These the rich men employed in cultivating their ground, of which they dispossessed the citizens. Gaius Leolus, the intimate friend of Scipio, undertook to reform this abuse, but meeting with opposition from men of authority and fearing a disturbance, he soon desisted. End quote. So see, they tried. They knew it was a problem. There was just such a conflict of interest in the Senate that they couldn't even get this limitation on how much public land a person could own, sort of a, a cap on the amount of public land a person could own. They couldn't even get that passed. And Gaius Leolus tries to solve the manpower crisis by proposing the obvious solution, and he has to back down, as Plutarch says, fearing a disturbance. What kind of disturbance would he have to be afraid of? Well, this brings us to two of the most interesting and relatively controversial figures in the Republic's history. And how you view them kind of depends on you know, your own point of view. One's name is Tiberius Gracchus, and the other's his brother, Gaius. Tiberius was the older. We're separated by about ten years. They came from a very blue-blooded family, and they were apparently destined to become the two men who lit the fuse that would eventually, you know, detonate the explosion that would tear the Republic apart. That was probably not what either man had in mind, considering they came from some of the oldest of Rome's elderly upper class. Tiberius is supposed to have been brought up in a very Greek fashion, with philosophers and all sorts of people who may have given him the sort of character and idealism that led him down the road to being a social reformer in Rome. But it sort of depends on your point of view. Historians have differed about these two characters ever since... You know, they existed. Were they the equivalent of liberal reformers? People like the two Roosevelts, who were United States presidents, both of whom at one time or another were referred to as traitors to their class, but certainly not revolutionaries. Were they more like that? Or were they revolutionaries? Were they proto-Marxists or proto-socialists? Were they popular demagogues like Huey Long in Louisiana, guy who was called the Kingfish and who... At one time, some Americans were worried would make a run for the White House, you know, with sort of a populism agenda, but with sort of fascist tendencies. All those labels have been applied to these guys. Sometimes, though, they look more like a Martin Luther King or a Robert Kennedy. The story goes something like this. Tiberius Gracchus, the older brother, like all Roman aristocratic youth with any sort of leanings towards government participation, was a soldier before he was a politician. And the story goes that he served in the Numantine Wars and that he was involved in something as a sub-commander that led to a deal that helped him extricate the lives of thousands of regular soldiers from sure death, but came at the cost of some of Rome's prestige and honor and also the same thing for some of Rome's generals. So he makes the Big-time people look kind of bad in order to save the lives of a bunch of common folks. That's sort of an analogy in his early career to the trade-off he's going to make once he becomes powerful in Rome. And the story is 
according to his brother Gaius, who wrote this stuff down, and then Plutarch found it in the libraries of Rome when he was writing, he said that his brother had an epiphany when traveling through the countryside of Italy and looking out and noticing that the land was being worked intensively, but not by freeborn Italians, by barbarian slave captives instead. The people that were supposed to provide the troops that were fighting these wars that Tiberius Gracchus was involved in weren't anywhere to be seen. Supposedly, though, you could see signs up, what we would call today forms of graffiti and whatnot, pleading for the return of the properties that were now in the hands of the big landowners. And to make the injustice of this whole loss of the yeoman farm somewhat worse was the fact that one of the reasons so many of these farms were falling into default, making them easy prey to be bought up by wealthier people, was the fact that the farmers themselves were off for years fighting. Had they been home on their farms like they thought they should have been, those farms never might have been in default. Then those soldiers would return home after serving their time for the state, only to find their farms gone, their families indigent, and there was obviously, you can sort of read between the lines and the sources, a simmering discontent amongst these folks. Tiberius Gracchus was drawn to those people, and one of his greatest speeches is directed directly at those veterans who'd returned home to find that they had somehow been cheated by the system. He says to them in a speech, quote, The beasts of the field and the birds of the air have their holes and their hiding places, but the men who fight and die for Italy enjoy only the light and the air. Our generals urge their soldiers to fight for the graves and shrines of their ancestors. The appeal is idle and false. You cannot point to a paternal altar, you have no ancestral tomb. You fight and die to give wealth and luxury to others. You're called the masters of the world, but there's not a foot of ground that you can call your own. End quote. That is good old-fashioned fire and brimstone populism, and it was scaring the Roman elites like nothing before. Tiberius became tribune of the plebs in 133 BC. This was an interesting position for a blue blood to grab, and he seemed intent upon championing the cause of the people. Was it because it was a surefire way to power, as some in Rome's senatorial class thought, or was he an idealistic reformer, championing the philosophies he learned as a kid from his Greek tutors? Whatever it was, it filled him with a certain courage that Leolus didn't have when he backed down from the Senate's opposition. Tiberius proposed the same sorts of agrarian reforms that Leolus and other people we would call today liberal reformers were pushing. And liberal reformers in the Senate, some of these old-line senators, joined in Tiberius's cause. They'd seen the manpower shortage. They knew things had to change, and the agrarian law that Tiberius was pushing would change them. The law called for all these lands to be broken up and redistributed to the common folks. And they go back to a law that was a couple of centuries old, and that had never been enforced. The new agrarian laws demanded that they be enforced. But this created all kinds of problems. For hundreds of years, the law had been ignored. The properties had grown larger. Multiple improvements had been made on all of them. Sometimes these properties that were technically illegal had been sold and resold and resold again, even though the laws said that the state would compensate the landowners and pay for the improvements the Senate howled in outrage. Tiberius Gracchus was an intelligent man. 
He knew what Leolus had run into when Leolus wanted the Senate to pass these laws, so Tiberius Gracchus didn't go to the Senate. He knew there was a stalemate waiting for him there, and that the Roman governmental system would thwart him. He also knew, though, as tribune of the plebs, he had an unusual option. He could take this agrarian reform plan and present it directly to the people who would benefit from it. He took it over the heads of the senators and had the People's Assembly vote on it directly. The senators screamed the same sorts of refrains you'd imagine today, that this was confiscatory, that this was communism and socialism and revolution in a sense. But they had no options except one. The only way they could stop what Tiberius wanted to do was to get another representative of the people to block him. The tribunes could block each other. There were ten of them. And the senators were able to find one of those people who would work against the interest of the people he was supposed to represent who would block Tiberius's measure. They get this one guy to do it. And this is where Tiberius runs off the rails. He then turns to the people and says that a tribune who would work against the interest of his constituents like that is no tribune at all. And he asks that the people remove this guy. And they vote for it. And the tribune who was enticed to turn against his own class is dragged out of the governmental chambers with the Senate convinced now that Tiberius wants to be some sort of a dictator. What's more, he now loses his liberal reformer support because they can't go along with someone who's going to be operating so outside the system as this. Due to the fears that something violently bad might happen to Tiberius Gracchus for fighting the powers that be, the entire people's assembly accompanied him home to protect him. The Senate also thought they had found a way to block the agrarian reform plan. They just decided not to fund Tiberius Gracchus's commission, so the people who were supposed to break up the land and reassign it weren't going to be funded by the state. But then something happened that presented Tiberius Gracchus with both an opportunity and probably sealed his doom at the same time. The king of Pergamum decided to leave his whole country to Rome in his will. This happened at other times in Rome's history as well where for various domestic reasons, the ruler of a kingdom would write in their will that when they died, their whole kingdom should be turned over to Rome. And the king of a place called Pergamum did this, and the Pergamines were extremely wealthy. They existed in Asia Minor, and they had trade routes, and it was a wealthy, wealthy place. And as all this is happening, where Tiberius's agrarian commission is cut off from funds, the king of Pergamum, with the will that is in the temple with the Vestal Virgins for safekeeping in Rome, dies, and the will is read, and it's discovered that the Romans are going to get all of Pergamum. It would be a little like if the current king of Saudi Arabia said in his will that when he dies, he bequeaths all of Saudi Arabia to the United States. Imagine the scramble that would occur in the U.S. government over who gets that wealth and how that wealth is used. That's what happened in the Roman government, and there's no doubt that the aristocratic senators had one idea of how that wealth should be used, and it certainly wasn't to fund an agrarian commission that they had just defunded. They certainly stood to gain a ton from using the wealth of the Pergamines, the way they would have used wealth 10 years earlier and 20 years earlier, 
Tiberius Gracchus was in a position to see that that didn't happen. Gracchus moves quickly on this and goes to the People's Assembly and moves that all the money of Pergamum should be used to fund the redistribution of the land and that it should be used to buy new farming equipment for the poor people so that they had the means to actually take care of the land and farm it. This was too much for the Senate. And from that moment on, the tension rose to such a pitch that there must have been a feeling of doom in the air. Now, the fact that Tiberius had done something really unusual and gotten rid of that other tribune created more problems for him because now his enemies had some sort of legal technicality that they could get him on when he got out of office. And he was very aware that all of a sudden lawyers were being hired and lawsuits were being presented and as soon as his immunity was up when his term of office was over, they were going to prosecute him for violating you know, these rules. So he came up with another idea that was not technically legal either he decided to try to become tribune for another term. Now, since the liberal reformers had already abandoned him, he was free to then go to the plebeians and offer even more concessions if they would just vote him another term, even though that wasn't supposed to happen. He promised the average people he would shorten military service. He was going to get rid of the senators' rights to be the jurors in the society. He was going to open up Roman citizenship to other Italians. This was an agenda his still conservative liberal reformers would never have gone for. But he needed to become a tribune again. He needed the support of the people against the powerful, or he was going to be prosecuted. When the next elections are held, on election day, Tiberius Gracchus shows up in the forum surrounded by armed guards from the people. He's dressed in mourning clothes, symbolizing the fact to everyone around him that if you don't vote for me and I don't get to be tribune a second time, I'm a dead man, because there goes my protection. And at that time, somehow, during the voting, violence is sparked. The senators from the aristocratic classes are said to have broken the legs off of tables and chairs, marched into the chamber where Tiberius Gracchus was to have overawed the lower classes with their aristocratic bearing and fancy togas, jewelry and signs of high office, and gone up and clubbed Tiberius Gracchus to death in front of his supporters. And kill about 300 of them as well, throwing the bodies of all of them, including the blue blood, Gracchii, into the river, unburied, unmourned, except by the common people, and hopefully forgotten forever as far as Rome's aristocracy is concerned. And that becomes the first blood shed in Rome's political wars, wars that would not come to an end until the Republic itself came to an end. It's hard to know what to call Tiberius Gracchus's uprising against the old senatorial order. Can't really call it a revolution. It wasn't like the French Revolution. It wasn't, you know, tons of lower class people storming the Bastille. It wasn't really like that. It was an attempt to use governmental mechanisms in ways to change things radically, or at least radically in the eyes of the old senatorial order. 
And you have to believe that they hoped that by killing Tiberius, and not just Tiberius, there were these extra constitutional prosecutions in the wake of his death where a bunch of his supporters were illegally put to death. This will become important later. And you could tell that the Senate was spooked by the whole thing because they then went on to pass a bunch of the very laws that they were so upset over that they killed Tiberius Gracchus because of it. That agrarian law that Tiberius wanted that the Senate was so upset about, they passed it anyway. They had to. They hoped that by killing this guy, killing his chief supporters, and then passing some of these laws, they could put the lid on what had been released, the bitterness, the feelings of resentment, and the anger on the part of the lower classes. This anger had been simmering for some time, brewing for some time, and Tiberius became a force that lit the gasoline on fire, and the hopes the Senate seemed to have was that they could stamp this fire out, you know, before it got too big. When you read someone like Plutarch, who was, of course, a Greek writer, about both of the Gracchus brothers, they come off as heroes. And the Senate becomes sort of the evil empire, and it's these freedom-loving heroes fighting for the people against the empire. But Plutarch, being a Greek, may have had a heck of a lot of sympathy anyway for people who promoted a more democratic idea. In addition, his major work, called Lives was intended to be a sort of group of moral examples that he pulled from history to inspire people in his era, which is hundreds of years later. So he's trying to find heroes, and certainly he's trying to make them look as heroic as he can. There's another way to look at this. Historian David Schotter explains what it was that so spooked the Senate, and why maybe, just maybe they felt the need to lash out against someone like Tiberius Gracchus. Here's what Schotter writes. Quote, Here perhaps we see what was seen as being at stake in these events. The land bill itself was controversial, but not so detested as to lead to its abolition after Gracchus's death. The methods employed by Tiberius Gracchus, however, were detested. The identity of Gracchus's supporters is probably less important than what the Tribune himself did. He rode roughshod through political convention in a thoroughly populist and demagogic way, just the kind of behavior, as Emilianus seems to suggest, was reminiscent of kings and tyrants. The clue to understanding this episode, therefore, lies in Emilianus's observation. Here is an engaging and significant example of a man who was thought of in his own time and later as humane, sophisticated, and forward-looking, but who, under extreme political pressure, showed himself to be as thorough a traditionalist as any one of his class. After all, the continued success of the aristocratic oligarchy was seen as depending upon the continued observance of Rome's long-established traditions. The problem now, however, was that once blood had been shed in the pursuance of a political feud, the clock could not be turned back. It was inevitable that in the post-Gracchan era, it would be easier, as a result, to settle political issues by resorting to violence. That was the legacy both of Tiberius Gracchus and of his contemporaries who supported and opposed him. End quote. He also quotes uh, an exchange between Emilianus and a Gracchan supporter named Carbo, asking whether or not it had been right to kill Tiberius Gracchus. And Emilianus diplomatically, Schotter says, responded that it would have been right if Gracchus had been attempting to establish a kingship. This idea of a kingship haunts the whole Roman period. They're so worried about someone trying to become a king that this becomes a word that will get people killed right away. I mean, the Romans are ready to rise up against a king in any form. 
It was this competition and not wanting to see someone else's family in charge of all of them that seemed to provoke an instantly violent response to charges or worries concerning whether someone was trying to become a king. And you can see how the senators would be kind of freaked out because what Tiberius did was take a position that is not normally thought of as a political office where you can remake the whole society. The tribune was supposed to be infused with all this special power to protect the interest of the plebeians, the people. It was more of a blocking role, if anything. But there were no laws saying you couldn't use the power the way that Tiberius Gracchus, and later his brother, tried to use it. It was just convention that said you didn't. It's like in the United States, we didn't have a law for a long time saying that presidents couldn't serve more than two terms in office. Washington declined a third term, so no one else until Franklin Roosevelt, you know, more than 100 years later, decided to try it. Convention's a powerful thing. When Tiberius Gracchus used the role of tribune to try to almost remake Roman society in a way that even the consuls couldn't, that was threatening. It also highlighted how powerful the tribune's power is if it was used in, you know, outside-the-box ways. So the senators try to get back to business as usual after Tiberius' death. But there's something on the horizon that's going to prevent this. The much more formidable figure of Tiberius' younger brother, Caius. A little note on pronunciation here, too. You can call this person I'm about to talk about Gaius or Gaius, Caius or Caius. Those are all different pronunciations from different periods and different approaches. Modern-day Latin that would say his name should be Gaius is... Modern-day Latin, where all the C's are made soft. It's a little like trying to decide if you want to say Macedonian or Macedonian. Macedonian is the way we say it here in the modern West. Due to a softening of the Greek, you go back to the area, and they're all going to say Macedonian. A lot of books have taken to using the actual K in place of the C so that you say Macedonian. The only thing you should try to be in these pronunciation questions is consistent, which I'm not. So my apologies for that. Um, But this person I'll call Caius was nine years younger than his older brother Tiberius. And for some reason, I always think of the Kennedy brothers when I think of these two guys, even though policy-wise it's not a good, you know, analogy. But when you think about two brothers where the older brother was assassinated and then the younger brother tries to achieve power in the same position his older brother had, there, there were some similarities. And, of course, they continue as the story goes on. And in the same way that Robert Kennedy was absolutely fundamentally changed by his brother's assassination and by the changes in society that happened in the intervening years, you know, the turmoil of the late 60s was so different than the feeling in the early 60s when Kennedy, the older Kennedy, was killed, you see a more radicalized version of the species. And the same was true when Caius appeared on the scene. And Caius became scary instantly, whereas his older brother was a measured speaker a sober individual, obviously a good orator, but from the old school, Caius could almost not control himself when he was speaking. He was a passionate speaker who would tear his toga off of his shoulder. Will Durant says he was the greatest speaker in Roman history to the time of Cicero. When you realize that Cicero is going to make the top ten list of Western orators of all time, You have to imagine, then, Gaius as being on the level of a Churchill or a Martin Luther King or maybe, depending on your viewpoint, even a Hitler. To have the ability, through the power of their voice, to almost demonically move the masses. 
And when Caius defends a friend in court accused of something and blows everybody away with his speaking ability, the powers that be saw the writing on the wall. Again, we turn to Plutarch. Quote, When Vettius, a friend of his, was on his trial, he defended his cause, and the people were in an ecstasy and transported with joy, finding him master of such eloquence that the other orators seemed like children in comparison. And jealousies and fears, on the other hand, began to be felt by the powerful citizens, and it was generally spoken of amongst them that they must hinder Caius from being made tribune, end quote. And try to hinder him, they did. This young man, hardly into his maybe mid-twenties, was given subordinate positions, and when the positions were over, his detractors accused him of all sorts of malfeasance, and he was continually acquitted of these charges. Once again, we turn to Plutarch to give us a feel for the situation. There are so few historians writing from any time near this period that we have to rely on him an inordinate amount of time. Plutarch picks the story up from here and writes, quote, But having cleared himself of every suspicion and proved his entire innocence, he now at once came forward to ask for the tribuneship, in which, though he was universally opposed by all persons of distinction, Yet there came such infinite numbers of people from all parts of Italy to vote for Caius that lodgings for them could not be supplied in the city. And the field being not large enough to contain the assembly, there were numbers who climbed upon the roofs and the tilings of houses to use their voices in his favor. End quote. So you have to have this impression of the lower classes, especially just swarming into the city to make sure that this guy gets the tribuneship. And when he does, it's got to be reminiscent of the idea of what if Robert Kennedy had become president instead of being assassinated himself on the campaign trail. And then immediately started getting involved in programs that his brother wanted to do because Caius had some ideas, like his brother did, about outside-the-box ways you could use this wonderful power of the Tribune of the People, powers that even the senators themselves didn't have but we're starting to really recognize the potential of this dangerous office connected to the people of Rome. Caius was probably a better politician than his older brother because he started to politically divide, in brilliant fashion, the senators from all the other classes of Roman society and undercut their support through political maneuverings. And he did it in ways we would understand today. He did it through political measures. He did it like a politician. And that's something that needs to be understood about the fall of Rome's story, is that it's a political story. It's politics melded with corruption and involving violence. It's like a three-strand rope all put together. And the politics is what sets off all the other dominoes. People get politically maneuvered into corners and then extricate themselves, often by corrupt and violent means. Gaius was attempting right now to put the Senate into a corner and box them in and undercut all their support. And he did this by giveaways. The first thing he did was propose to the poor what has become called the corn dole. The corn dole was a reduced price on grain for poor people, you know, in the city of Rome. The mob, the urban poor, these people who lived in these multi-story tenements that some historians have said must have been just bubbling with the potential for riot at any given time. And what giving these people cheaper government-subsidized grain did 
was disrupt their client relationship with the Senate. These poor people had relationships with these senators, sort of like the godfather. Caius is now providing bread on their table, undercuts that support, and transfers their allegiance to the state. So away from the powerful individuals into the state, and Caius is representing the state. Caius goes to the equestrian class of people, these people that are right underneath the class of the aristocracy who are running the Senate for the most part, this group of people that is becoming wealthier by the minute because they're the business class of Rome. These senators don't like to get their hands dirty with commerce. It's not seen as a very noble profession. Their wealth is translated into land ownership, which is considered a noble way to have your wealth invested which leaves the whole realm of commerce open to the next class of people. And as you can imagine, Rome at this time is a trader's dream. This equestrian class is becoming rich and powerful because they're participating in commerce, because there's a vacuum, because the senators won't. And this class is starting to feel its oats. And Caius goes after them because they always seem to support the senators. They're almost like one class when it comes to their allegiances. Caius goes in to give the equestrians a reason to ditch the senators. And it should be noted there are lots of other examples in history where the nobility of a country, the blue bloods, will sit at the top of the food chain and then eventually be challenged by non-blue bloods who've managed to make a lot of money. You can only keep the moneyed classes down so long, and you see lots of examples in history where they vie for the top leadership roles in governments eventually. In this case, Caius went to them and said, first of all, the senators shouldn't be judging you as they are, and they shouldn't be judging each other because the senators dominated the courts at this time. And an equestrian who got into trouble or who accused a senator of corruption had to go and you know, sit in front of other senators who would make that judgment. And there was a feeling that the equestrians didn't stand a chance in a lot of cases. And Caius said, you ought to be sitting on those courts. He also said, you know, that there are 300 aristocratic senators, for the most part, in the Senate. Why don't we add 300 new ones to that 300, double the size, but make the 300 new ones all come from your class, diluting the power of the aristocracy. And the last thing he did, which would cause unbelievable problems for Rome down the road is he told the equestrians that they should be the ones in charge of the tax collection in Asia. That province that we talked about of Pergamum that was so rich that was bequeathed to Rome in a will was now quick becoming a Roman province, and the Romans were going to tax it. Now, the Romans didn't have a tax bureaucracy. They didn't have an IRS or an inland revenue service. What they had were people competing to get the taxes for the state. We would call them independent contractors today. And he allowed the equestrians to be the ones to bid on these contracts. And the way it would work is all these different, what we would call today probably companies, would compete to see how much money they could offer the Roman state in the taxes from this area. And the highest bidder would then be allowed to go to what the Romans called Asia, over by Pergamum, over in Asia Minor, Turkey today. And it would be their job to get all the money that they promised Rome. And then after they paid Rome the amount of money that was in the contract, any more they could extort from the population they could keep. The equestrians got to keep an awful lot of it. And once more, it transformed an already rich class into an even richer class and pulled their support away from the Senate. According to Cicero, Gaius called this reform creating daggers with which the nobles might lacerate each other. The problem is the daggers outlived this period by quite a long time. 
He promised more land reform, like his brother had done. He also knew that you can't just get classes to get, you know, the state overthrown. You need to have the army. And he promised the soldiers that the people of Rome would pay for their clothing now and their uniforms, and those folks wouldn't have to have it come out of their own salaries. He was buying off every class and pulling all this possible support away from the senators, and it left the senators completely neutered. Caius's deft political maneuverings had undercut the power of the Senate without a you know, person being injured. Will Durant says that the Roman Senate was, quote, almost ignored by Caius and reduced to apparent impotence. It saw in the brilliant tribune only a demagogic tyrant extending his personal power through the reckless distribution of state property and funds, end quote. And that is, you know, we can't couch this story so much in terms of the rich against the poor, the people versus the powerful, because these Roman senators often believed that they were defending the Constitution and the law, and they were suspicious of other Romans' personal ambitions. They knew how ambitious all young Romans of high class were born to be and how much those qualities were honed during their lifetimes. They understood that the family that Caius Gracchus and Tiberius Gracchus came from, sought honor and glory, just like theirs. And so they were skeptical of the motives of both Gracchi brothers. And later Roman history would certainly prove them right when it comes to people who would go after the mobs and the lower classes of Rome and promise to be their champion, only to really be thinking of personal political power themselves the group that sprang up that used to cater to the mob, it actually means mob panderer or something close to it, are called the populares. And a lot of Roman politicians during the fall of the Republic era will associate themselves at one time or another with the cause of the populares. The other group are called the optimates, and the optimates are called that by their adversaries who sneeringly use it as a term of abuse, but it means the best. So you have these optimates and these populares, and the politicians will, especially after this period, associate themselves with one or another and sometimes change over you know, to other sides. And there will be several examples of Roman ambitious politicians who champion the cause of the people for their own personal aggrandizement. And the Senate certainly believed that Caius Gracchus was no saint and that he was doing this for his own interests. But they couldn't do anything about it. Caius manages to get elected tribune for a second consecutive time in 122 BC. And now the Senate's freaking out because they think they've got someone who's well on the road to being a king on their hands. When Caius makes a political mistake, the Senate sees an opening. Caius had been proposing all of these various reforms to pacify various Roman groups. And where he went too far was he proposed giving... Roman citizenship to a lot of Italians who were Roman subjects and under Roman control, but didn't have the rights of Roman citizenship. There had been discontent boiling in the provinces for a long time. It would break into open war in the period right after this one between Rome and the other Italian allies. And in an attempt to pacify the anger out in the countryside, Caius proposes that more of these Italians be made Roman citizens. The mistake was in not seeing how the Roman citizens he just bought off would view that. They didn't want to share their privileges 
with a lot of new people. They were happy to have the subsidized corn. They were happy to have all the equestrian privileges, but they didn't want to share it with a whole bunch of new Roman citizens, which is what giving citizenship to these other Italians would mean. The Senate used this temporary blow to Caius's popularity to put forward their own tribune, a person elected to represent the people. But just like the Senate did 10 years before to undercut Caius's older brother, they found a tribune of the plebs, a tribune who's supposed to be working for the people's interest, who would secretly work for theirs. And they went to a guy, also from a good family, named Marcus Livius Drusus. And they went to Drusus and said, you know, basically something we would assume to the effect of, look at what this guy's doing with the tribuneship. He wants to be a king. Will you help us? And Drusus gets on board, and what he does is the most cynical display of political gamesmanship I've ever seen. With the Senate support, he goes in there with one plan and one plan only against the designs of Caius Gracchus. His plan is, whatever Caius Gracchus is promising the people, we'll promise more. It was an amazingly cynical and yet brilliant plan at the same time. Once again, a politically cornered entity, the Senate, that had been thoroughly outmaneuvered in the political chess game by Caius, finds a way to overturn the board. And it has the desired effect. When Caius proposes that two colonies be established overseas, and this was popular with the lower classes, but expensive, so the Senate usually frowned upon it. The Senate criticized him. And then Drusus came out, instead of proposing two colonies, proposed 12, and the Senate supported it. When Caius offered land to the poor people, but wanted just that little token amount of money for the public treasury that had always been the deal, Drusus criticizes any amount of money that should go to the public treasury. The land should be given away for free, and the Senate supports him. Drusus cuts taxes. Here's what Plutarch writes about it. Quote, But the Senate, apprehending that he, meaning Caius, would grow at last too powerful and dangerous, took a new and unusual course to alienate the people's affections from him by playing the demagogue in opposition to him and offering favors contrary to all good policy. Marcus Livius Drusus was a fellow tribune with Gaius, a person of as good a family and as well educated as any amongst the Romans, and no ways inferior to those, for their eloquence and riches were the most honored and most powerful men of that time. To him, therefore, the chief senators made their application, exhorting him to attack Gaius and join in their confederacy against him, which they designed to carry on, not by using any force or opposing the common people, but by gratifying and obliging them with such unreasonable things as otherwise they would have felt it honorable for them to incur the greatest unpopularity in resisting. End quote. Every time Caius wants to accomplish something, the Senate opposes him. Every time Drusus wants to, the Senate goes along with it, so Drusus seems much more effective and is giving much more away to the citizenry. So when Caius tries to run for office again to get a third year as a tribune, he's defeated. The Drusus political ploy works, and Caius counsels his followers against any sort of violence because there was a lot of suggestions that the vote had been rigged. Historians always mention the fact that the contention at the time was that the ballot boxes had been stuffed. Caius did not want any trouble, no violence to break out. He goes and retires to private life. But then 
a new consul is elected at the very next election of Rome who turns around and starts the process of undoing the reforms that Caius had done. After all, now that he was gone, you didn't have to have Marcus Livius Drusus promising the people things. Now you didn't need Marcus Livius Drusus, and you could try to, as much as possible, go back in time and turn back the clock and pretend like Caius was never there. This did not sit well with the lower classes, and Caius and his supporters marched to the election field to confront the consul and his supporters on the day when these measures were going to be voted on, the first repealing of the proposals that Caius had gotten passed when he was tribune. Now, it's obviously an explosive mood, and you can tell that any spark is likely to set off some problems, and you get a real feeling of suspense when you read Plutarch about what it was like on the way to the assembly grounds, and the spark happens. A rude comment by one of the people on the consul side of things caused a scuffle to break out, and the man who makes the rude comment is stabbed with the equivalent of a fountain pen. Everybody freaks out when this happens, and, well, Plutarch picks up the story. Quote, This murder caused a sudden consternation in the whole assembly, and the heads of each faction had their different sentiments about it. As for Caius, he was much grieved and severely reprimanded his own party because they'd given their adversaries a reasonable pretense to proceed against them, which they had so long hoped for. Apimius, who's the consul who's working against Caius's reforms, immediately seized the occasion thus offered, was in great delight and urged the people to revenge. But there happening a great shower of rain on a sudden, it put an end to the business of the day. End quote. So the next day, the senators have their supporters carry on a litter around the city of Rome on the way to the Senate, the body of the individual stabbed the day before. And then they put the body right out in front of the Senate chamber so you have to walk by it to go in. When the senators get into the chamber, they tell the consul, Apimius, that he should be invested with extraordinary powers to protect the commonwealth and suppress all tyrants. This is a special power to protect Rome that is sometimes granted in extraordinary situations. We would call it today martial law. And the senators are told to arrive in battle gear on the next morning and to bring two armed slaves with each of them. So you're talking about hundreds of armed men. The sources differ on whether it was one day after the killing of the individual with the fountain pen stylus or two days afterwards. But what is sure is that everyone knew now that this was going to come to blows, and Plutarch, at least, thinks that the upper classes were relishing the opportunity, a chance to get rid of their adversary, and say, and maybe even legitimately feel, that they're protecting the Constitution, law, and the Republic while they do it. So we have to imagine the tension being almost overwhelming. Everyone knows that the next morning, the highest classes in society are going to come armed and ready for action. An associate of Caius, a man named Fulvius, has gathered the population up, anyone who's willing to join this revolution to protect the gains made when Caius was tribune, show up and guard both Caius and Fulvius's house overnight to make sure that things don't start before the morning. But everybody knows that when the morning comes, some sort of violence is really likely. What ends up happening is Caius and Fulvius supposedly send out a boy 
to say that they don't want any trouble. Caius wants to negotiate, and a lot of the assembly, we're told, was ready to listen. But the consul Epimius is cast as the bad guy in the story, and he tells the boy to go away, that you basically surrender to the state and the senate, or we come after you. So the boy is sent out again, because apparently Caius doesn't want any trouble. And uh, this time, he's waylaid and captured, we're told, by Epimius, who's intent upon violence and doesn't want to hear any more proposals. Violence breaks out when a group of Cretan archers that the state had hired and some militia legionaries that they'd paid for attack Fulvius and a bunch of the citizens, killing a bunch of them and forcing them to flee en route into the narrow streets of the urban areas. But it's clear now that the revolution is on. It's also clear who's going to win. After the first outbreak of violence with all of Caius's supporters taking over this one hill in Rome, sort of barricading it, waiting the inevitable assault. The Senate offers a pardon to anyone who will defect from Caius's cause, and heartbreakingly for him probably, lots of people took advantage of it, and the people melted away from this besieged hill, leaving only the core of supporters left. At the last moment, Caius was being deserted by many of those whose cause he had taken up. Caius runs to the temple of Diana, decides he's going to kill himself because the situation's bad. I mean, Fulvius and his son are found in a bathhouse trying to hide, and they're killed outright. People are being slaughtered, supporters of the populares. Instead of being able to kill himself, the sword that he's trying to use is taken away from Caius by two of his friends who tell him that he has to flee instead. Just get out! listening to them, he starts on the run to get out of the city, accompanied only by a slave. And we're told that as he's running, people are coming out of the house to wish him, you know, good luck, but they're not giving him any horses or any help. No one wants to be able to be brought up on charges on trial afterwards by an angry Senate for having helped, you know, the cause of a man who will soon be proclaimed, no doubt, an outlaw. Plutarch writes, quote, Caius, therefore, endeavored now to make his escape, but was pursued so close by his enemies, as far as the wooden bridge, that from thence he narrowly escaped. There his two trusty friends begged of him to preserve his own person by flight, whilst they, in the meantime, would keep their post and maintain the passage. Neither could their enemies, until they were both slain, pass the bridge. Caius had no other companion in his flight, but one Philocrates, a servant of his, as he ran along, everybody encouraged him and wished him success, as standers-by may do to those who are engaged in a race. But nobody either lent him any assistance or would furnish him with a horse, though he asked for one, for his enemies had gained ground and got very near him. End quote. One has to imagine a person who feels a little betrayed. He tried to help all these people, and the people were not willing to do any more for him than raise their hand and wish him good luck the pursuers would find the body of Caius Gracchus, along with his servant or slave, Philocrates, in a sacred grove. Most historians believe that Caius asked his slave to kill him, and then his slave killed himself. Although some stories suggest that he may have been killed by his pursuers, and the slave hugged his master so closely that he ended up getting the first sword blow and Caius the second. Caius's head was cut off. 
the brains were taken out by the person who cut it off, and it was said that it was filled with lead instead because the Senate was offering a reward, and the amount of money you got was based on how much Caius Gracchus's head weighed. By the time it's all said and done, some 3,000 Roman citizens are butchered in the street, killed in their beds, tried right after the fact, thrown into the river, and their relatives denied legally any chance to mourn them. Will Durant has an interesting postscript to all this concerning how the people that Caius Gracchus had appealed to reacted. He writes, quote, The city mob made no protest when his corpse and those of his followers were flung into the river. It was too busy plundering his house. End quote. The poor of Rome would eventually show much more affection for Caius Gracchus and Tiberius Gracchus as time goes on. Roman expert and author Tom Holland sums up this period when he writes, quote, A system that encouraged a gnawing hunger for prestige in its citizens, that seethed with their vaunting rivalries, that generated a diamondism so aggressive that it had overwhelmed all who came against it, also bred paralysis. This was the true tragedy of the Gracchi. Yes, they'd been concerned with their own glory. They were Roman, after all. But they'd also been genuinely passionate in their desire to improve the lot of their fellow citizens. The careers of both brothers had been bold attempts to grapple with Rome's manifold and glaring problems. To that extent, the Gracchi had died as martyrs to their ideals. Yet there were few of their fellow noblemen who would have found that a reassuring thought. In the Republic, there was no distinguishing between political goals and personal ambitions. Influence came through power. Power came through influence. The fate of the Gracchi had conclusively proved that any attempt to impose root and branch reforms on the Republic would be interpreted as tyranny. End quote. From now on, Rome's generals, who were also Rome's politicians, would back up their domestic reforms with swords. In the next episode of Hardcore History, we get a chance to see what Roman politics looks like now that blood has been injected into the process. The killing of the two Gracchi brothers changes the rules, and there are going to be men, powerful, rich, ruthless, extremely effective men, who will take advantage of the new rules. Men like Marius, men like Sulla, these hyper-ambitious individuals who have no problem destroying the Republic in order to save it. All that and more in the next episode of Hardcore History. For merchandise and past shows, go to dancarlin.com.